0: Well, good morning, Calvary Church. Happy New Year to you. It's 2021. It's no longer 2020. We made it. Congratulations. Well, it's an honor and a joy to be able to preach the Word of God to you this morning. But buckle up, because we have a great sermon coming from the book of Micah here this morning. And as you make your way to the book of Micah, I encourage you to turn there now, because it's kind of hard to find. It's in the Minor Prophets. But as we turn to that book, I have a question for us. Have you ever wanted to ask God a question? Have you ever wondered why God made the world as it is today? Or perhaps have you ever questioned why God allowed a certain circumstance to take place in your life? Now certainly many people in scripture had questions of God when they interacted with him. If you remember the story of Joseph or excuse me Job, He questioned God regarding all that had happened to him in his lifetime, why he went through so much tragedy. Additionally, we walked through several months ago the prophet Habakkuk, and he wondered why God would allow such injustice to take place in his society, not knowing what God was already preparing as he was sending the Babylonians and the Syrians to come and to bring judgment to his people. And in fact, the Bible answers many, but not all, of our questions that we have about God. But have you ever wondered what would happen if God wanted to ask you a question? What might he inquire of? What question might he allow to arise in your heart for you to ponder? And this morning, we're going to be taking a look at a section of the book of Micah, chapter 6, where God brings two questions to his people that I believe are applicable to us here and now today as well. Hence, our title for our message this morning is called Answering the Almighty, Answering the Almighty, because these are questions that we should answer and that God brings to us full force but before we dive into the Word of God, let's ask God to bless our time this morning because I think it's a great sermon, but unless God shows up, it's not going to work well. So let's ask God to be able to move. Lord Jesus God, we thank you so much, Lord, that you have allowed people to come out this morning. We thank you, Father God, that you have given to us your Word, Lord Jesus, in the English language with so many translations, Lord, that it's tough for us to find one that we like because there's so many God, we thank you for the word that you have spoken to the prophet Micah, and Lord, we pray that you would, as your psalmist says, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of your word. We pray, Father God, that you would give us ears to hear, that we would not harden our hearts, but that we might come before you open and willing for your word to work in our hearts and in our lives. Father, we pray all these things, and I ask that you would help me to preach as though I preach the very oracles of God. We pray this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Now usually, after I pray, I dive right into the text, and we're not going to do that this morning because we need a little bit of background to the book of Micah, right? Because we've been looking at some of the different passages that refer to Advent over the past couple of weeks leading up to Christmas. Those have been fantastic, but now we're jumping into the Old Testament, into a very kind of peculiar area of the Old Testament, so I want to give us a little bit of background. The book of Micah doesn't give a whole lot of background for the occasion and the purpose for writing, but it does tell us that Micah, the prophet served in the southern kingdom of Judah during the reigns of Hezekiah, Jotham and Ahaz and this would put him at the towards the end of the 8th century BC now, at that time, Assyria was the superpower of the day. In our modern day, the United States were the modern superpower, but back then, it was Assyria to the northeast of Israel. And the time period, again, where Micah probably lived and ministered was probably from 742 B.C. to 686 B.C., with probably it being completed before in, part, in part or in whole before 722 So that's the time period, a little bit of that. But a lot of times when we look at the Old Testament, we don't look at dates, we look at stories. So let me give you a few other dates to put it in context. About 1400 B.C. is when Joshua and the Israelites conquered the Promised Land. And after them, you had the initial kings in Israel. You had Saul, David, and what was the last one? Hey, we're still awake. All right, Solomon, all right. And that was from about 1050 to 930 BC. And after King Solomon, remember what happened to the kingdom. It was divided in two. You had Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And eventually, God sent the Assyrian Empire, the superpower of the day, to crush the northern kingdom in 722 BC. And our text takes place right before that takes place. We know that because God foretells the destruction of Samaria right before it happens. And so, rewind the clocks back a little bit the beginning of 700s B.C. And at this point, the temple is still in Jerusalem, Solomon's temple, the richest king and most prosperous in all of Israelite history. Still, his temple stands in Jerusalem, and the priests are doing their ministerial duties. People are still going there and offering sacrifices, and people are still worshiping God with the temple, an integral part of the Hebrew faith. Now, if that's the background for the book, what's the structure? Because remember, we're jumping into chapter 6, there's five other chapters I'd love to go through, but we don't have time to do that this morning. But the first three chapters announce destruction to come to both kingdoms, specifically calling out the priests, the prophets, and the rulers of the people in chapters 1 through 3. But then things dramatically change in Micah. And as we sang this morning, Micah chapter 4 includes, and also chapter 5, a message of future hope for the people of God with a passage about the mountain of the Lord that we sang about this morning and, in addition, the Christmas verse that we often read about, the location of the Messiah's birth in Bethlehem of Ephrathah. But in the final section of Micah in chapters 6 through 7, which is where our text is this morning, is the present response to the message of future hope but also of future destruction. And that's what we're going to be taking a look at with this morning. So, hopefully you found Micah. If you haven't yet, good luck. But um, all joking aside, we're going to jump into Micah chapter 6, starting in verse 1, going through verse 8. This is what the word of the Lord says. Hear what the Lord says. Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, you mountains, the indictment of the Lord and you enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I set before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak king of Moab devised and what Balaam son of Baor answered him. And what happened from Shatim to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. Verse 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousand rivers of oil? Or shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Now, as I said, within this text, there are two questions that I want to try to answer for us this morning, and that's where our outline is going to trace this morning. And the first question comes from verses 1 to 5, and that is this, how has God let you down? First question, how has God let you down? Because it opens up sounding like that is the case almost. But you see... At the beginning in verse 1, God says to his people, Arise and plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice, calling all of creation. If you have a case to be made against God, why don't let all creation listen to it? Verse 2, Hear all you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, you enduring foundations of the earth, for the Lord has an indictment against his people and he will contend with Israel. Sounds like he's upset with his people at this time. And notice that God is appropriately calling his people into almost a question and answer session, almost like a courtroom context, because they have been abandoning God, and God is saying, what is the reason for it? It's an example of prophetic disputation with God speaking through Micah. And God isn't just saying this for rhetorical purposes. You know, sometimes we come across scripture, and we're thinking, maybe God's just getting them to think. But verse 3 says, oh my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. He's looking for a response. And again, earlier in verse 1, Arise and plead your case before the mountains. Let the hills hear your voice. He's saying, let's all creation witness to the case that you bring against me, O Israel. Because God wants a response for how he's wearied them, that they would go astray and rebel against him. Now, The word for wearied here in the Hebrew text refers to a sense of wearing one down or emotionally draining somebody, according to James Swanson in his commentary But God is basically wondering, how have I let you down? How have I failed you? That you would go awry and astray and abandon me in rebellion in all these things. And God even opens up the beginning of this book with similar wording. In chapter 1, verse 2 of Micah, if you have the Bible with you, I encourage you to flip there real fast. In chapter 1, verse 2, because again, remember, chapter 6 deals with a reflection on the rest of the book. So we're just going to look at two quick references of that. But chapter 1, verse 2 says this, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Again, sounds like God is bringing a charge against his people. Verse 3, For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place, and he will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. Now what does that mean? We might hear high places and think high elevations like mountains or different areas that we can go on a hike. But high places here refer to actually areas that Israel was going and traveling to that they would worship other pagan deities and commit idolatry and immorality before God. Real quick question for you. How many of you have ever read the book of Kings before? First and second kings. All right, nice job. You ever notice as you go through the book of Kings, it gives a brief description of this was a king in this place and such and such was a good king or a bad king, but then it says the high places were not still taken down. The reason it says that is because the people were still committing pagan worship even though there was sometimes good kings, they would still go off and rebel against God and worship others. And the reason I bring this up is because the state of immorality in Israel at that time, and Judah, was bad. The prophet Isaiah was a contemporary to Micah, so a lot of the same similar judgments that he brings are against similar reasons. And one commentator describes this immorality by saying this. Warren Wearsby says this, quote, The sins of the people were hidden behind a veneer of religious activity, routine worship that didn't come from their hearts. Micah's contemporary, the prophet Isaiah, told the people that the nation was sick from head to foot, but they wouldn't admit it, and that their worship was nothing more than trampling the temple courts, end quote. You see that the people were using their religious traditions to be able to be a mask or a facade for their rebellion in their hearts. They were still doing religion, but in their hearts it was rebellion, and it wasn't, sadly, just the people who were going astray. The leaders of the people, both politically and religiously at the time, were doing the same thing. Micah chapter 3, verse 9 through 12 records this. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, and who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads, or its rulers, give judgment for a bribe. And its priests, well, they'll, they'll teach for a price, And their prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No disaster shall come upon us. Remember, they got God's temple right there. God's among us. No disaster shall come to us, the people of God, because He is in our midst. And then God says this. Verse 12 of chapter 3 Therefore, because of you, the rulers and leaders, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, and Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mount of the house of the Lord a wooded height. And I bring that up to share with you you see that the land was fully tainted, full of these evils and these immoralities and these iniquities. And God was asking them, How have I let you down, my people, that you would rebel in all of these ways? Which brings us back to the question this morning, how has God let you down? The same question being asked to Israel at that time. And in verses 4 to 5 of chapter 6, our passage this morning, God gives several references to Israelite history, but the reason he does this is to be able to give an evidence to how God has worked for them. He's saying, how have I wearied you? How have I let you down? And if you don't remember, let's look at some of the references to history that I have provided for you. The first one is from verse 4, where he says, For I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. Now, which book of the Bible is he talking about there? Exodus, there it is. We got somebody bold enough to say, nice, in Exodus, that's right. And you remember, God's people were oppressed there for 400 years. Put that in perspective. If you wind back 2021, 400 years, what year is it? 1621, Galileo was still looking through his telescope at that point. That's the amount of time they were in slavery. And God sent Moses to deliver them with signs and wonders and incredible miracles to be able to bring Israel out of Egypt and deliver them from the oppression of the Egyptians at that time. God is bringing that to their remembrance. Do you remember what I did for you in the Exodus? How I brought you out of that. Now, I usually preach pretty fast in my sermons, but pause just for a second. Think about the Exodus. What would happen... In the midst of the exodus, if God took a day off, think about it. If God was like other pagan deities and just, you know, was maybe like Elijah mocked, he was taking a nap or he was relieving himself. Just for one day in the midst of the exodus, when Egypt was filled with fury against Israel, what would happen if God took a day off? They would have surely been destroyed. And God is bringing to their remembrance, remember how I have provided for you and I have been at work for you. And he continues on as well in verse five. He says, Oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised and what Balaam, son of Baor, answered him. Now, pause there. It's a little bit more of an obscure reference, but that's a reference to Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And in this account, Israel is coming up out of the wilderness and they're traveling by the land of Moab. And the king of Moab is opposed to Israel, and so he hires a pagan prophet for hire called Balaam. And he says, I want you to go out and three times curse Israel. So Balaam says, all right, I'll do it. He goes out and three times attempts to curse Israel, God's chosen people, but three times God only allows him to pronounce blessing on the chosen people of God because God was sovereign and protecting his people even in a time where they might not have thought he was. And the last reference from chapter 5 is towards the end and it says and what happened from Shatim to Gilgal and if you don't remember that's a little bit of an obscure reference but it's, ge- it's uh, geographically referring to the area right around the Jordan where God allowed his people to cross into the promised land like they left Egypt walking across the bank of the Jordan River and the bed on dry land because God held back the river now, God brings up all these references for a reason, and the purpose is at the end of verse 5. Verse 5 concludes by saying this that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. What is God trying to say? He says, I have been righteous and I have been good in my interactions with you. I have provided for you, I have protected you, I have been your shield, I have given you what you needed. That's his track record, and these are not coincidental examples of God just allowing good things to happen. Remember, think about these circumstances. If God didn't provide for them in the wilderness for a month, and they didn't have manna, and they didn't have quail, and they didn't have water, what would happen to them? Perish from thirst in the midst of the wilderness in Sinai. God has sustained them this entire time, and even now in this moment with Micah, God has not yet abandoned Israel. If you don't believe me, the end of the book of Second Chronicles has an interesting phrase. You don't have to turn there. I'm just going to summarize it. But at the end of the book of Second Chronicles is right before Israel and Judah finally go into exile. And if you notice there, it says that God sent persistently to them prophets. Meaning that in the midst of their rebellion and rejection against God, God sent them prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet, trying to call them to come back to God, to turn away from their sin, that they might come to God and live and prosper as God desired them to do so. Because God is merciful. He sent them prophet in mercy. He didn't just say at the very first sign of iniquity, you're out of the land. They would have left the land as soon as the sin of Achan. But the question remains for us here this morning. How has God let them down? There's an answer to it. Our answer to our first question this morning is that He hasn't. God has not let you down. God has not let Israel down. Though God had countless reasons and opportunities to abandon His covenant with Israel, He remains loyal because of who He is in His character, because God is good. In Him is light, and there is no darkness at all, as the New Testament says. Yet, as soon as I ask this question, how has God let you down, our hearts probably start to think, well, what about all those hard times in Israel's history? Because has Israel had a, a blissful history? Easy? Difficult? It's been hard. It's been very hard for many years. Why is that the case? The reason for this is every single time things have gone difficult for Israel it's because of a breach in covenant on their part. If you don't remember... Israel and God entered into covenant together. They agreed to it as well. But a lot of times we look at the bad and say, is God just? And to help take a new perspective at this, I want to look at a hypothetical situation. Think about maybe a teenager here in the church that doesn't exist. This is a hypothetical, okay? So let's give her a name that doesn't refer to anybody here in the church. Let's think of a kid named Jezebel, all right? If you're a new married couple, don't name your kid Jezebel. If you have questions, ask me later. But let's say Jezebel is a senior in high school. And mom and dad, when it's not COVID, promise that you can go down the shore for an all-expenses-paid vacation with your friends on July 4th coming this coming year. Jezebel's excited, she's gonna get down the shore with her friends, and she's looking with anticipation to this, and the night before, she's about to head down the shore with her friends, mom and dad ground her for a month and take away her phone. Now, our reaction might be, that doesn't seem fair. Why would you do that, mom and dad? But what if there was more to the story? What if earlier that week, Jezebel went to mom's purse? Saw a little credit card there. Slyly withdrew it and proceeded to go on Amazon and purchase a $2,000 new computer without asking mom, stealing her credit card. Does that change the situation at all? It does. Because when we first encounter the situation, it sounds like, well, mom and dad are just being mean. But when we hear the full side of the story, well, no, they're being just parents to their child lying to them and stealing from them. And this is similar to Israel's history because God has not let down Israel, though many times people think that he had. Because God clearly outlined in his covenant and in the law what would happen if they did this and what they would happen if they did that. If you're a good parent, you say, all right, here's your choices. You can do this and you can do that. And if you do either of those, these are going to be the consequences for that. If you obey mom and dad, this is the reward. If you disobey mom and dad, this is the punishment. And God did a similar thing to his people Israel in the end of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 17 and 18 says this. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, then I declare to you today that you shall surely perish, you shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. What is God saying there? He's outlining what will happen if you do X and what will happen if you do Y. Because God is gracious. He doesn't want to punish them for something he didn't tell them about. He is telling them beforehand so that they might fear God, worship him, and walk correctly and rightly before him now it's plain for israel but what about us today because we are not under the mosaic covenant what does this text mean for us today is there meaning there or is this just an irrelevant old testament text like some people think when it comes to interpreting the old testament i encourage you to write down romans chapter 15 verse 4 because it's very helpful when it comes to understanding things Romans chapter 15 verse 4 says what was written in the former days is for our instruction that through endurance and encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. Sounds like there's still meaning in the text. Now again I preface that with a quick disclaimer all right we don't practice sacrifices here like in the Old Testament we don't observe the Jewish holidays and things like that but there is still truth in the Old Testament that gives instruction for our living. If you don't believe me read the epistles of Paul he oftentimes refers back to the Old Testament. And if it was irrelevant, why would a New Testament apostle quote the Old Testament as an appeal to authority? Because it still has value. And so, let's ask ourselves the question here, 2021. How has God let us down? The answer is the same. He has not. Church, we just came out of a tough year, 2020, for many of us. For some it wasn't as difficult, but for many it was. But Was that year difficult because in 2020 we lost our salvation? No. Or maybe did God stop loving us in 2020 and that's why everything went crazy? No. Or did God say, you know, this whole sovereignty thing is a bit overrated. I'm going to abandon my sovereignty for a time. Did he do that? No, he did not. Not one bit. Yes, it's been a hard year, but God is the one who has sustained us through 2020, and I believe he is the one that will continue to sustain us if we seek him and are faithful to him in what we say and do. But do you know what God has done in 2020? He brought us a new pastor. sitting right over there. His name is Daniel. If you haven't met him, get a chance to. He's kept the lights on in the building throughout the entire year when many churches have had to turn them off and close their doors. He's kept the new roof from leaking over the gym that we were praying for, and I'm sure Dave Roosh was anxious about. He's given us the physical and spiritual food that we need, both physical food in that we know where our next meal is coming from, even though it's difficult. And additionally, he has given us the word of God because we don't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. He's given us opportunities for fellowship as well. Yes, I know it's more challenging with COVID, but there's still some opportunities for fellowship. Guess who doesn't have that opportunity? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ in North Korea, you don't have an opportunity for fellowship. It's very different. He's blessed us with technology to keep in contact with those that are immunocompromised online or can't make it because of snow, because of the talents and the hard work of people like the Chevette boys and Tom Thomason as well. You know, even new babies born to families in 2020, they'll look back and say that their birthday was in 2020. They're a good gift from God because children are a blessing, but it came in the year of 2020. Not to mention that in 2020, many godly couples got married and united in holy matrimony, and we were able to celebrate that together. In 2020 of all years, they'll look back, that's their anniversary. Last fall, God blessed us with allowing new members to join the church. The Olsens, Rachel Starr, and Deb Roosh all joined the church last fall in the midst of a challenging season. Not to mention God brought some saints home to be with him to no longer suffer corruption here in this world. God has allowed us to fund and send out a new missionary family in the Doyles as they prepare to head to Zimbabwe. In addition to providing for our financial needs in a year where we didn't have certainty going into it, very recently God has provided a new interim worship director in Julie Mealy as well, who's very talented. He's continued to bless us with an amazing church facility because you know what happens when other youth pastors come and visit Calvary Church? Their jaws drop at the facility that we have because it's a good one. God has kept our elders in unity throughout all this as well. Not to mention loving us with a love that none of us are worthy of, providing a perfect sacrifice for sin, drawing people to faith in him last year because of the specific circumstances of 2020, people came to faith in Jesus Christ because God was still at work. Not to mention correcting us when we are in our error and interceding for us in our failings. So church, I ask again, how has God let us down in 2020? He hasn't. Satan wants us to think that he has let us down, he has failed us, that because there's challenges with the country and with our own finances and many other things, and I'm not trying to minimize anyone's hardship, but God is still good, even though things are hard. Don't let us forget that. Don't forget this point. He has not let us down for a moment. Now, that's our first question our first answer concluded, but there's more to this passage as well. Because verses 6 through 8 continue on, and the question, the second question we have in our outline and in this passage is, what does God want from you? What does God want from you? I'm going to get to the answer in just a little bit, but I'm going to let you uh, hang in anticipation for just a little bit. But this question comes from verses 6 through 8, where God can, uh, continues on and speaking, saying, With what shall I come before the Lord through the prophet Micah? With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and with calves a year old? Or verse 7, maybe will the Lord be pleased if I bring thousands of rams and 10,000 rivers of oil? Or shall I give the firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Verse 8, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Now remember the context, God is angry with his people. So the reason they're asking this question is because God is angry and has a righteous wrath against his people for continuously breaking covenant throughout the years. And so Micah is exploring hypothetical things that we can bring before God to appease him because God is mad so we need to do something because otherwise we're in trouble is basically the rationale. And you might think maybe we can appease him with ideas like burnt offerings, rams or oil or even offering up our own children as an offering for sin but there's a problem with this way of thinking because God's favor cannot be bought by our deeds or our gifts that we bring to him. And we should not think that if we do enough good works that that will appease God because that's not the way it works. God is not a man. If you offend me, you can take me out to a nice dinner afterwards and I'll be friends with you for many years. But for God, we can't do that because our deeds don't change his personality in who he is. And a lot of times we think, well, what if we actually did these things? Because we look at them as hypothetical situations. But some things in the Old Testament give examples that people tried these things to give a thousand burnt offerings for sin. You know who tried that? Solomon, First Kings three four. He offered up a thousand burnt offerings on the altar and an immense amount of oil as an offering to God. Now. If God's favor can be bought by how good of a sacrifice or how much we can offer to God, how would Solomon's standing be before God? Pretty darn good. But you remember what happened to Solomon? His wealth and his wives that were from other religions and groups turned his heart away and he ended his days recording the book of Ecclesiastes and recording that it is vanity to live for this world apart from God and that we should remember God in the days of our youth when we're young. Not to mention that he continues on with the hypothetical situation of giving up one's own children as a human sacrifice, which is honestly a, a grotesque thing to be able to include. But do you know why God put that in there? Many people might think, you know what, that's, that's gross. Why would God do that? That's horrible. It is a horrible thing. We're not condoning it. But do you know what one of the demons that Israel was worshiping was called? Molech. You know how you worship Molech? One of the ways was you offer your child as a burnt offering in the fire. God puts it in his word because his people were doing it. And that's why God is jealous for the affection of us and for his people. Because when we depart from a God who is life and light and good and truth, and we move away from that, the only thing we can move towards is darkness and death and falsehood and everything that is awful. God is a good God and he puts that in there because the people were doing that trying to appease pagan deities. God says that is not what I am seeking. The way that we worship God matters because all these sacrifices fall short of satisfying the wrath of God against sin. So if that's the case, what should we do? What does God want from us? We should follow the example of David in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17 where he says, you, O God, will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings. But the sacrifices of God are this, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. God doesn't say, when you mess up, bring me a richer gift. doesn't say, if you sin this week, write us a check for a million dollars, and then you're good with God. That's not the way it works. Our salvation is not based on what we do for God, but how we approach him. Because we can't rectify the situation on our own strength. If you don't believe me, think back to Luke chapter 18 and write down the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. We're not gonna walk through it today, but in summary, this is basically what happens in the New Testament. You have a stereotypical good boy, the Pharisee of the day, right? He knew God's word backwards and forward. He was a little bit legalistic, but to them at that time, he was the spiritual hierarch at that time. And by contrast, you had the tax collector who was also praying to God, the stereotypical bad boy of the day. He was evil and wrong, and you should never look to be able to live like him because he betrayed his people for money. And Jesus records this in a parable where he says the Pharisee comes before God and says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. I pray so many times a day. I fast twice a week, not just one. I thank you that I'm not like all these others. And by contrast, in the parable, the tax collector would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but would beat his chest and say, Have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said in that parable that one man walked away from there justified and one did not. Can you guess who it was? It was a tax collector. Because it's not based on how many prayers or how good we are or how often we go to church. It's based on how we come before God. And that's the answer to our second question. Our hope is a humble and heartfelt obedience. That's the only response. A humble and heartfelt obedience because as Isaiah 64, 6 says, we have all become like one who is unclean and all of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment, which is a gentle way of translating the Hebrew, which refers to a used menstrual garment. Our righteous deeds don't count for anything before God in earning our salvation. They're good to do once we come to faith, yes, but it doesn't earn our salvation. And so what is the response for a humble and heartfelt obedience? Well, in Israel, in Micah's day, it meant returning to the covenant that God had given to them. He didn't mean a radical new revolution of morals, but rather going back to what God had given them in the first place. And that's where in verse 8, he tells them to do justice because the people were perverting justice in the land, especially the leaders. It's a theme within Mike and some of the other minor prophets, but he wants them to return to covenant faithfulness. He doesn't tell them to bring retribution on an unjust society. God's already going to do that, namely through the Assyrians and the Babylonians. He's already got them lined up. They're called to be able to do justice. He tells them to love kindness because the rulers were being violent in their domination of the people rather than providing for and protecting God's people. And lastly, he tells them to walk humbly with God, which is the parallel, the thing that we need to be able to remember is that we need to approach God with a humility. And God in his mercy knew that Israel would be imperfect before him and in His law wrote what they are supposed to do when they mess up because God is merciful. Yes, He's just. Yes, He is righteous. Yes, He is all those things, but He is also prudent and merciful. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 1 through 3, it says this, And when all these things come upon you, the blessing and the curse, he knows what's going to happen in the future, which I have set before you, and you call them to mind among the nations where the Lord your God has driven you, and you return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice in all that I command you today with all your heart and all your soul. Then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have mercy on you, and he will gather you from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. Notice that when God knows in the future they mess up majorly and they want to come back to God, the answer is not through more sacrifices and try harder, earn your own salvation. Because the sacrifices at the temple did not take away sin. They were a temporary covering until Jesus Christ came as the perfect sacrifice for sin. So if that's Israel back in that day, good. What does God want from you? What does God want from me? As believers in Jesus Christ, we're not under the Mosaic Covenant. And, what God, and yet but what God commanded in verse 8 is not wrong by any means. We should live by these principles. We should seek to live justly, not showing partiality in our dealings. We should not seek to oppress those because of ethnicity, background, or culture. And we should seek to oppose injustice. However, God does not call us to be the ones to bring about recompense for injustice in our societies. It's why it's written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-five. Additionally, we should seek to love mercy or kindness, depending on your translation, because as people of God, we are to be the salt and light of the earth. So when people interact with us, do they know us as the stingy people that drive a hard bargain to get every cent we can out of a deal, or are we gracious and merciful in our interactions with unbelievers? Additionally, we need to seek to walk humbly before God because of what James 4, 6 says. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we approach God with our chest puffed out saying, hey, I'm pretty great. Aren't you glad that I'm on your team? We've got it all wrong. God opposes us. But God gives grace to the humble. That's why the answer is a humble and heartfelt obedience. But we cannot just stop there. Because you can do all of those things. You can seek justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with God, but at the end, that is not sufficient for us right now in the new covenant on grace. Because we are a non-national gathering of believers from all kinds of different backgrounds. we got Norwegians, Swedes, maybe even a few Danes and Italians and some Nigerians and other people in the church as well. We're not national Israel. We're under the new covenant of grace inaugurated by Jesus Christ. So what does God want from us under the new covenant as Gentiles? Well, Jesus explained the essence of the law in two commands in the New Testament. He said, the greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. Because he says, on these, depend the commandment, or on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And yet, while these two commandments are the embodiment of the law, we should seek to fulfill them in also one other way. Because there is one commandment given in the New Testament that if we reject, we will perish just like the lawbreakers of the Pentateuch. 1 John 3.23, 20, if you're a teenager and you've been asleep the whole time, wake up and hear nothing else except just this. 1 John 3.23, and this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us. This is the commandment that we must obey and to refuse means destruction because one day we will stand before God based on our own imperfect righteousness Or we'll stand before God with the righteousness of Jesus imparted to us by faith. We must follow this with a humble and heartfelt obedience because we cannot fake our faith. You can fake out your pastor. You can fake out your spouse, your family, because nobody else can see your heart but God can. And that's why you cannot fake this. You can be humble, but it also must be heartfelt in your obedience to God because we cannot fake our faith and we cannot believe with pride in our own ability. We can only come to Jesus saying, I believe in you, forgive me of my sins, have mercy on me, a sinner like the tax collector in Luke 18. Have you obeyed this command? You might have grown up in the church and even prayed a whole lot in your life, but that will not save you. You could even be a pretty good person overall, but when we stand before God, he does not curve our score on morality. We are either perfectly righteous or imperfectly evil. There is no middle ground between the two. Those are the only two camps because God is righteous and truth. Our understanding of morality is skewed so that we are always in the right. God's understanding of morality is not affected by sin and therefore the only thing that we can trust for true morality. And even if we do a good deed and a lot of them, it cannot ever erase a wrong deed done because without the shedding of blood, There's no forgiveness of sin. And as scripture says, life is in the blood. And Jesus gave us his life. He didn't just take a a needle, prick his finger, and put it right there on the cross and say that's enough. He gave his own life so that we might be able to live as well. Because God is a gracious God and he saw our helpless state and our sin and he said, I love the world enough to be able to send my son to die on the cross and take the penalty for their sin so that anybody who would respond to God in faith and a humble and heartfelt obedience to believe in Jesus Christ will be forgiven of all sins, past, present, and future, and have a new life in Jesus Christ if they put their faith in Jesus Christ. And so I ask you again, what is your answer to the Almighty? You might have wondered for a long time, what does God want from me? And when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, God sees us as fully pleasing, not because we're perfect, but because of the life of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and if you have never got the opportunity to put your faith in Jesus Christ, I can assure you that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead as a sacrifice for your sins, you will be saved. If you've already made that decision, it's a good reminder for us as well it's not by what we do. It's not conditional salvation. So I ask you for the last time, how will you answer the Almighty? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you, Lord Jesus. For all that you've done, we thank you for the truth of the prophets, Lord, and that you wrote them to apply in their immediate context, but Lord, that you also allowed them to be in our Bibles, that we might see and study and understand that similar truths apply to us today. You wanted a humble and heartfelt obedience for Israel to go back to their covenant in faith, and you also want us to be able to respond to your Son, Jesus Christ, today in faith. And so, if there's anyone here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus Christ, and you want to, you can repeat after me with a short prayer. It's not magical, but if it expresses the sincere desire of your heart, you can be saved. You can pray, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know that I have rebelled against you, and I want to receive your forgiveness. Would you cleanse me of my sins and give me eternal life? I surrender my life to you to live for your kingdom and your will forevermore. Amen and amen.